0: Yesterday, one of the sisters, I don't want to use her name, but she's married to me and lives at home. (laughs) She said, I am so happy for Murtis, and I'm happy for her too, sad for us, but in this sermon, we're going to see why she's having the time of her life, okay? Let me pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you for your word. Even as it was read, it stirred our hearts, O oh God, as you had designed for it to do. And we ask that you would help us to be attentive to your word, Almighty King. We're so prone in our flesh and in our weakness to be distracted and to be anxious and whatever else. But by your Spirit, O oh God, make us good listeners, expository listeners of your word. Help us to test what's being said against your scriptures, and to receive your word eagerly through this preacher. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, people from many backgrounds have come together in this room to worship the living God. How does a thing like that happen? right, let's just mull that over for a second. This gospel that we hold dear came from a city that is incredibly far away. Jerusalem is located in the Middle East, and Las Vegas is thousands of miles of land and sea away. And in addition to that, Judaism was not a popular religion. And Christianity started as even less popular than that. It was considered by the Romans as just a sect of Judaism, which they already looked down upon. And the Jews who rejected Jesus, of course, hated Christianity. So Christianity, our faith, had every reason to be squashed. How does it spread under those circumstances from Jerusalem all the way over here? Furthermore, Las Vegas is sin city. We're nowhere near the Holy Land. We're nowhere near even the Bible Belt. People come to Las Vegas to expressly for the purpose of sinning. To have a room full of gathered believers from different backgrounds, different age groups, different cultures, different ethnicities, to come together on a Sunday to worship God rather than indulge in worldly pleasures is unusual. How does a thing like that happen? Answer? God. Christianity has spread like wildfire all over the world. Even though there is much more work to be done, this is a glorious reality we should thank God for. According to a report by the Pew Research Center, the number of Christians around the world has nearly quadrupled in the last hundred years, from about 600 million in 1910 to more than 2 billion in 2010. And what that means is that one-third of the world's population identifies as Christian. Now we're not under any illusion that everyone who calls themselves a Christian actually is one, but these statistics give you a picture of Christianity's worldwide reach. This is in comparison to the estimated 4.5 million Jews in Jesus' day. So there are now 51,000% more professing Christians today than there were professing Jews in Jesus' day. Again, this is just for illustrative purposes. It gives us an illustration of the spread of Christianity. This is all God's work. We may take for granted that God has people all over the world because that's the kingdom that we were born into or born again into. But our exposure to that reality, the fact that we woke up spiritually and there are Christians all over the world, our exposure to that may weaken the impact of that revelation. Before Christ, before Christ, B.C., God's covenant people were limited to a very small geographical area across the world and walled off to the Gentiles physically and spiritually but God so loved the world that he gave his only son he loved and had chosen people from every tribe tongue and nation it was always his will it was always his will that his grace would go beyond Israel So he sent his servant to accomplish that purpose. Today, we're introduced to that servant. Last week, we witnessed a, a showdown between God and the false gods of this world. And we concluded that false gods are exactly that. They're false. They're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. And their metal images are empty wind. And then in the very next passage, we're introduced to somebody called God's servant. And as we learn about God's servant, may our hearts sing at the reality that God sent this servant to save people like us. As we go along in our passage, we're going to see, this might shock you at first, 10 characteristics of this servant. 10. And that's several more points than we're used to, but this sermon is going to be about as long as our sermons usually are. So what that means is they're going to go quickly, all right? So pay Pay close attention as we go through these. First, let's see this about the servant. Number one, the servant was God's chosen one. The servant was God's chosen one. This one's going to be a bit longer than the others. Look at verse 1 of Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Now, it may seem like that this is just an abrupt subject change, right? The previous passage, talking about idols, false gods, they're not real, and then suddenly, the servant. But what we see here is not just an abrupt subject change that's unrelated. What we're seeing here is that this servant is God's answer to the world's idol problem. The servant was the answer to the world's idol problem. You see, either you were an Israelite who worshipped Yahweh, or you lived in another nation and you worshipped those nations' gods. That was your situation. What that meant was that every nation on earth, except for this relatively small Judah, bowed the knee to false gods, bowed the knee to idols, and therefore they were headed towards God's wrath. But that was unacceptable to God. And so his answer to that issue was this servant in our passage today this is the first of four of what is are commonly called servant songs which describe this man that we're talking about today verse one begins again behold my servant who is this servant of course our impulse is to say jesus and that is not a bad impulse to have but we need to know Why we conclude that this is talking about Jesus? How do we know it's not talking about Cyrus? How do we know it's not talking about Israel? Let's consider these things for a moment. King Cyrus, as if if you've been listening to these sermons in the past several weeks, King Cyrus has been God's chosen hero, right? As we saw in the previous chapter, uh, he is this chosen one who just goes in on, on God's behalf and delivers his people. He'll even be called, in chapter 45, God's anointed. How do we know that Cyrus isn't the servant in this chapter? Well, as we go through this passage, we're going to see several characteristics that don't apply to Cyrus. The servant is described as having God's spirit upon him. That's not said of Cyrus anywhere in Scripture that God's Spirit was upon him. And in fact, in chapter 45, we'll also see that Cyrus wasn't even aware of God's call and purpose for him. He probably found out afterward. He was also not known for being meek and mild like the servant would be. He was known for being powerful and generally good, but sometimes a ruthless conqueror. He was also not a mediator of God's covenant. As the servant would be so we're gonna see a lot of parallels to Cyrus but this servant is actually someone to whom Cyrus would point Israel is also called God's servant in several places in Isaiah which makes that a possibility as well we need to take that into serious consideration however not all of Israel had God's spirit upon them that was a promise for the new covenant not the old They were also infamously not a faithful, obedient, humble, and gentle nation. They also failed in their mission to be a light to the other nations. I would argue and submit to you that this servant is who Israel was supposed to be. But it was ultimately pointing forward to somebody else. Now whether this passage had some fulfillment in Cyrus or Some fulfillment in Israel is debated, but what we know for certain is that this passage is ultimately talking about the Messiah. How do we know that? Jesus said so. Matthew 12, 14 through 21, cites verses one through four of this passage, saying that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're also gonna see that this passage, where it doesn't perfectly describe Cyrus or Israel, it perfectly describes our Savior. God says of his servant, look at verse one, behold. Let us behold him indeed. Behold. God then says in verse one that his servant is one whom God upholds. What this means is that God would strengthen and support his servant to accomplish his mission. Now, that might hit your ear funny when it comes to Jesus Christ. You might think, Jesus didn't need to be upheld, he's God. But that's not how the New Testament speaks. Jesus says in John 14:10, "Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works." Everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus did, he says, was from his Father. Amen. Hebrews 5:7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus prayed desperately to the Father to save him from death before the cross. There were several times that people tried to kill him and apparently he prayerfully relied on his Father to uphold him. Now why did Jesus being very God, need to depend on his Father. It's because while Jesus is fully God, he is also fully man. Since the incarnation, that is. And in his humanity, during his earthly mission, he was completely dependent on his Father. The one the Apostle Paul calls in 2 Corinthians eleven thirty one, 31 the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus, in his divine nature, the Son has no God. He himself is God. But in his human nature, his God was the Father. He worshipped the Father. He prayed to the Father. And he was completely dependent on and upheld by the Father. So the servant would be one whom God would uphold. He is his, verse 1 says, chosen God chose his servant for this purpose. One one commentator notes that that the word in this context implies that the servant is excellent. He is his choice selection to serve him. And that's certainly true of of our Savior Jesus. He is the chosen one and there is no one better to be the servant. It also says in verse 42 that God's soul delights in his servant. What this means is that he has a deep affection for his servant. He's satisfied by his servant. God verily approves of this servant. What was said of Jesus that sounds very similar to this? During Jesus' baptism, we read in Matthew 3.17, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God's soul delights in his servant. And if God's soul delights in his servant, shouldn't our souls delight in him as well? Should we not delight in Jesus Christ and knowing him? Should we not think like Paul when he writes in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish." In order that I may gain Christ, the servant was God's chosen one. The servant would do what Israel could not do and what Cyrus could only typify. He would be the one to accomplish God's perfect purposes for his glory and for our good. Praise God that he chose the right servant. The servant was God's chosen one. Secondly, number two, the servant was filled with the Holy Spirit. The servant was filled with the Holy Spirit. second part of verse 1 says, I have put my spirit upon him. What does that mean to the Old Testament believer that God's spirit was put upon someone? Well, whereas in the New Testament, the spirit dwells constantly in every believer, in the Old Testament, he would come and go for specific purposes. He would come and go to give people wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and skill for various tasks. He would enable them to prophesy and speak God's words. He would empower them to judge, lead, and deliver God's people from their enemies. And the servant Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke 4.1 says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And by the way, it was in that state of being filled with the Spirit that he overcame every temptation of the evil one. And then in Luke 4.18, Jesus reads from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then he says that that passage was fulfilled in him. And then in Acts 10.38, we read that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Similarly to the question we asked about why Jesus would be dependent on his Father, we now ask, why did Jesus need the Holy Spirit? It's because, again, while Jesus is fully God, he is also fully and truly man. He wasn't just appearing to be a man. In his humanity, he had the limitations of being a human, albeit a perfect one. So, just as he relied on his Father, he relied on the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish everything that he accomplished. He spoke by the Spirit, he did signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit, just as Christ's disciples would do in his footsteps. He did speak and act on his own authority, being very God and God's servant but he did not do so apart from the guidance of his Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in his perfect life of obedience to the Father, tempted in every way, as we are, yet without sin, and his reliance on the Spirit, he models for us how we ought to live. We are tasked, as the church universal, to go and make disciples of all nations, like Laos, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And we ought to carry that out the way that Christ carried out his ministry, fully dependent on God. That's why Jesus also says in the Great Commission, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And by the way, unlike King Saul, who had the Spirit for a little while, but then the Spirit departed from him, The Spirit would never depart from Jesus. And now all we who believe in Him have the same Spirit dwelling in us permanently. Thank God. So the servant was filled with the Spirit. Thirdly, the servant would bring justice to the nations. The servant would bring justice to the nations. The end of verse 1 says, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now when that hits our ears, it may sound like a negative promise because we often associate justice with judgment but judging nations is not what's in view here what this is talking about is God's establishing his will establishing his law his righteousness among all people instead of only the Jews consider consider God's law for a moment okay it is true that God's law condemned God's people because they were unable to keep his law perfectly But on the other hand, the law was delightful. In Psalm 119, 1 through 3, it says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. The fact that God told Israel exactly how to live was a blessing to them. It was a blessing to them. It was a blessing they often squandered, but it was a blessing nonetheless. And God would extend this blessing to the nations. He would provide them also, not just the Jews, but the nations, a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. How did Christ the servant accomplish this? How did he bring justice to the nations? First, he perfectly fulfilled the law followed it perfectly he also taught that loving God with all of your heart soul, mind and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself were not just a couple of the commandments they were the greatest commandments the commandments from which all other commandments flow he taught that justice is not just obeying God outwardly but inwardly and then he died on the cross for sinners like you and me So that whoever believes in him will not only be forgiven and saved, but they'll also receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who will help them to walk in love. And then he sent out his disciples to spread this saving gospel message to the world. And thus, God's justice is found in every nation. You say, Well, there is just so much injustice and unbelief all over the world pastor ed that's true but there is far more justice and belief in the world today than before christ's ministry the gospel continues to spread throughout the world and as people are converted god's justice increases now our post-millennialist friends believe that this world will be overwhelmingly christianized before the return of christ and while the pastors may disagree with them exegetically that's one thing i'd be happy to be wrong about but what i do know for sure what we know for sure is that jesus reigns on the throne now and he will continue to build his kingdom as more and more people come to faith in him and as more people come to faith in him he will have brought more justice to the nations And one day, he will fully and finally consummate this. I just pictured Ms. Murtis riding in behind him, clothed in white, to see this happen. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The servant would bring justice to the nations. Number four, the servant would be meek. The servant would be meek. Verse 2 says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He will not cry aloud. He's not going to be, he wouldn't be loud or boisterous in his ministry. He would be unlike those worldly kings who would arrive in pomp and circumstance. He would not, verse 2 says, lift up his voice. That's the same idea here. He wouldn't speak loudly to just draw attention to himself he would not verse 2 make it heard in the street again same idea here he wouldn't go around bragging about himself others sought fame for themselves glory power for themselves even king cyrus sought these things for himself even hezekiah of judah was braggadocious showing the babylonians his treasures which ended up getting Judah into this very predicament that they were in. But the servant of Yahweh would not be that way. And by the way, we are to be like the servant as servants of Jesus Christ. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark ten, forty-two through 45, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ was meek. When he arrived, he arrived relatively quietly. He wasn't born into a royal family. He was born into a humble and poor family in a stable, laid in a feeding trough. When he rode into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, it wasn't on a steed, but on a donkey, on a colt. He even washed his disciples' feet. Jesus was meek. He was, as his father is, slow to anger, And abounding in steadfast love. And when he was falsely accused, he was silent and was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Because Jesus was meek, he showed himself to be this servant in this passage and accomplished our salvation. He did nothing for himself, he did all things for God and for people. And while he did often gather great crowds, it wasn't because he was all about himself. In his meekness, he perfectly revealed God to us, who himself does all things for the benefit of his people. God doesn't need anything, and yet he gives us all things. The servant would be meek. Fifthly, the servant would be mild. The servant would be mild. Look at verse 3, the first part. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench what's a bruised reed well imagine a reed plant that has been damaged or bent by some external force bruised reeds were considered worthless they were considered useless and often they would just be broken off and thrown away or destroyed jesus would not come in and be harsh and oppressive as other rulers were consider even how the babylonians they came in and they captured the best and the brightest of Judah. They only took their favorite Jews back to Babylon. They took the best reeds for themselves, and the bruised reeds they broke and left behind. That's not how the servant would operate. That's not how Jesus operated. He ate with tax collectors and sinners who were despised by the religious leaders in society. He touched and healed lepers compassionately providing them a way to be restored to the community. He welcomed children who were considered insignificant, unworthy of attention. He spoke with and evangelized the Samaritan woman who was despised because of her mixed ethnicity and her immoral lifestyle. And he also said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A bruised reed he will not break. Verse 3, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. This is often understood to be referring to those who are weak, especially those who are weak in faith. He's not going to make a wick that is producing only a small flame and extinguish it. Again, that's not how the Savior operates. There's this trope in fiction where somebody questions the bad guy's methods and the bad guy takes care of him in front of everyone and then he looks around and says, anybody else? That's not our Savior. When the man whose son had an unclean spirit said, help my unbelief, Jesus didn't say, Well, come back to me when your faith is stronger. No, he showed compassion. He cast that unclean spirit out. Jesus was mild. He wept over Jerusalem. He saw that the crowd of thousands following him was hungry and where his disciples said, Let them get their own food. He said, No, we will feed them. He forgave and restored Peter, who denied him three times. And he tasked him to feed his his lambs. Now you might be thinking, but there were plenty of times when Jesus was not meek. That's true. He cleansed the temple twice. He confronted the Pharisees regularly, sometimes even rebuked his disciples sharply. He even cursed the fig tree because it wasn't bearing fruit. So how does this square? It's because mildness does not mean weakness. Mildness is strength under control. Jesus was not spineless. He stood up. He defended God's honor. He was bold and courageous toward the proud and the wicked. And our tendency is to want to emphasize one over the other, especially if we want to justify the way that we're living. If we're prone to being harsh, if we're prone to being in your face, we'll say, well, look how Jesus spoke here in this verse. And if we're prone to being passive, We might say, well, look what he said and didn't say in this verse. But the reality is that Jesus was both strong and gentle. He was both zealous and mild. And we need wisdom on when to use what as his servants. But notably, you'll notice in the scripture, we're never commanded to be harsh, ever. But we are in several places commanded to be humble, gentle, and self-controlled. We are to be mild like our Savior is. He doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't quench faintly burning wicks. The servant would be mild. Sixthly, the servant would be steadfast. The servant would be steadfast. Let's look at the second half of verse 3 and all of verse 4. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So we already talked about earlier in the sermon how he would bring justice to the nations. And here we see that the servant would do so faithfully. Israel was supposed to do this. Israel's kings were supposed to do this, but they didn't do so faithfully. Consider a couple of Judah's recent kings in Isaiah's time. We had Ahaz, didn't trust the Lord, but instead he made alliances with the Assyrians and the Egyptians. He also introduced child sacrifice into Judah by sacrificing his own son to Molech. Israel's king did this, Judah's king. And he closed the doors of the temple, closing off worship to Yahweh. Manasseh, Ahaz's grandson, rebuilt the high places that his father, Hezekiah, had destroyed. He set up altars for the false gods Baal and Asherah, And he also practiced witchcraft, divination, and sorcery. Those kings were supposed to faithfully bring forth God's justice. But they didn't. But the servant would. And not only would he bring forth justice to Judah, but he would establish, verse 4 says, justice in the earth. As we saw earlier, he would bring justice to the nations, and now we see that he will not faint or be discouraged till, verse 4 says, he will not faint or be discouraged till he does that. Nothing would stop the servant from establishing justice on the earth. Nothing. The end of verse 4 says, and the coastlands wait for his law. Now remember, in the thinking of Israelites, the coastlands were the farthest regions of the known world, right? And that's, that's the idea here. The ends of the earth wait for God's law. And remember what we said earlier. God's law, is going, God's law going to the ends of the earth is a good thing, provided that the gospel goes with it. The reformers and the Puritans used to summarize it like this. This is a, uh, something you may want to write down. It's a great quote. The law sends us to Christ to be justified, And Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified let me say that again the law sends us to Christ to be justified and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified in other words God's law first helps us to realize man we need a Savior I need to be forgiven for violating God's law and then once we're saved once we're forgiven we see the beauty of God's law and in love We strive to obey it. And when we obey it, we live life the way that it was originally designed to be, which is a life of flourishing, even in the midst of suffering. Therefore, it's a good and gracious thing for the servant to bring his law to the coastlands. The coastlands waited for his law, and he brought it to them. Jesus was steadfast in accomplishing this purpose. He was steadfast in it. John 4.34 says this, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The disciples were worried about Jesus' eating food and good for them, they should have been. But he says, my food is doing what my father sent me to do. Doing his work, that's my food, that's my sustenance. Jesus also set his face to go to Jerusalem, even knowing what awaited him there. Praise God that he sent us a steadfast servant who stopped at nothing, even to save sinners like you and me. The servant would be steadfast. Seventhly, the servant would be a covenant from Almighty God. The servant would be a covenant from Almighty God. Look at verses 5 and 6. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Notice how in verse 5 that God appeals to his own power to assure the people of what he was promising to do. He appeals to his power. Verse 5 says that God, the Lord, created the heavens and stretched them out. We've already talked in a previous sermon about how vast our universe is. God created it all, and it was nothing for him to do so. He stretched it out like it was nothing. He also spread out the earth and what comes from it. Sometimes trying to grasp the universe, the size of it, is difficult. But when it comes to the Earth, even with all of our human population, even with all of our technology, about 35% of the Earth's ocean is still considered unexplored. And about half of the Earth's land surface remains relatively untouched by humans. Our planet is massive compared to us. It's massive, but God spread it out and everything that comes from it. He also gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it, verse 5 tells us. In other words, he is the one who gives life to everyone. He gives life to everybody, and that's not easy, at least not for us. One musical puts it this way, every life is unbelievably unlikely the chances of existence almost infinitely small. The most common thing in life is life, and yet every single life, every new life, is a miracle, end quote. Those are good lyrics. We may take take life for granted, but life is a gift given to every living person from God himself. This is what the Almighty says to the servant at the beginning of verse 6. He says this in verse 6. I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness. God is perfectly righteous. And he calls his servant according to his own righteousness. And he expects his servant to himself be righteous and accomplish his righteous will. He calls his servant in righteousness. and Then he continues to say in verse 6 that he would take the servant by the hand and keep him. This continues our thought from earlier that the servant would be upheld by God. The servant would be steadfast, yes, but he would also be taken by the hand and kept by his God. And by the way, that's what our own perseverance is like. Do we need to persevere to the very end? Do we need to strive for holiness? Do we need to make it to the very end? Do we need to avoid falling away? Yes, but in the end, we'll look back and see that it was our God who took us by the hand and kept us. The next part of verse 6 says this. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a covenant for the people. This servant would establish and mediate a new covenant between God and the people. Commentators debate whether the phrase the people in this verse is referring to people in general or Israel, and we're going to lean toward Israel in this context because Simeon, when he saw Jesus in the temple, he said in Luke 2.32, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And in our passage, we see that the servant would be as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And it's true. It's true, this new covenant would be made with every Israelite who believed in Jesus Christ. But the servant would also be, verse 6 says, a light for the nations. This covenant would include people like us, people from other nations. This is another another blessing that we might accidentally take for granted. If If you're a believer, you were saved in a new covenant context. And so you might not realize how amazing it is. In Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 21, the Apostle Paul relishes in this delightful mystery, this revelation to the world. At one time, those who were not Jews were completely separated from the concept of the Messiah. They had no concept of a Messiah. They were alienated from Israel. They were strangers to all of the covenants that God had made with Israel that pointed forward. They had no hope and they were without God in the world. That's us. In verse 13 of Ephesians 2 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is us we were far from God. We didn't have the Torah. We didn't have the law. We didn't have the prophets. We didn't have the promises of God. But Christ's blood, his sacrifice, has brought us near to God. The passage in Ephesians goes on to say that God broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And he did this by abolishing all of the laws that only applied to Israel. Jesus fulfilled and abrogated what theologians refer to as the ceremonial law. And under the ceremonial law, it made Jews clean and Gentiles unclean. God removed that in Christ. All are clean who believe in Jesus Christ. The passage goes on to say that that God preached peace to those who were far off. That's what we were talking about in the introduction. God brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, even Las Vegas. And through Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike have access in one spirit to the Father. Because of what the servant accomplished by being a covenant, we are no longer strangers and aliens. We are, Ephesians 2.19, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Not only would this covenant be for both Jews and Gentiles, but it would also be much better than the old covenant. In the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. In the old covenant, it was external to the people. In the old covenant, much of the community had no desire to obey God's law. In the Old Covenant, much of the community didn't even know God. And in the Old Covenant, their sins condemned them. But in the New Covenant, in Christ, according to Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34, the law is now within us. The law is written on our hearts, meaning that not only do we know God's law, but we actually want to obey it. It is at our core. In the New Covenant, Everyone in the community knows God. Don't you see how that's better? Throughout Israel's history, we read it in the Old Testament, so many of God's people went astray. So many kings led them to idols, and they died in their idolatry. Under the new covenant, everyone in the community knows Yahweh. The new covenant community is made up of people who know God and whose hearts have God's law written on them and everyone in the new covenant community everyone in the new covenant community is forgiven for their iniquity god remembers their sin no more why is this the case it's because the servant is our covenant given to us by almighty god it was god's answer to the problem that israel was continually disobedient to him He sent them a covenant to save them, namely Jesus Christ. And all Jews and Gentiles who believe in him are saved. The servant would be a covenant from Almighty God. Thanks be to God. Eighthly, the servant would be our rescuer. The servant would be our rescuer. Verse 7 says this, To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in the darkness, in darkness. Jesus would be the light that would open the eyes that are blind. This blindness is talking about spiritual blindness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The one who blinds is Satan, and the one who gives light that breaks through the blindness, is Jesus Christ, the servant. He opens the eyes that are blind. He opened your blind eyes if you believe in him. He also, verse 7 tells us, brings out the prisoners from the dungeon. Those who are in sin are imprisoned by sin. There is no way that they can break themselves out of that dungeon. But the servant would bring prisoners out. That's what the Savior has done. He has freed people from the dungeon of sin. He brings out from the prison, verse 7 tells us, those who sit in darkness. The servant would bring prisoners from darkness to light. And by the way, after the servant died and rose again, purchasing salvation for his people, he commissioned his people to this ministry of bringing people out of darkness and into light. Acts 26, 17 through 18 says this. This is when the Apostle Paul was explaining his ministry to King Agrippa. He told Agrippa what Jesus had said to him. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The servant includes us in his rescue ministry. What an honor, what a responsibility. The servant would be our rescuer. He opened our blind eyes. He brought us out of the dungeon when we were sitting and wallowing in darkness. God sent us a rescuer, his servant, and his name is Jesus Christ. The servant would be our rescuer. Number nine, number nine. The servant would glorify God the servant would glorify God. Look at verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He is Yahweh. That's his name. He's not Marduk. He's not Ahura Mazda. He's not Baal. He's not Asherah. He's Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the only true and living God. And he says in verse 8 that his glory he gives to no other. God's glory is in his attributes. It's in his majesty. And he gives that to no one else. He alone is holy, holy, holy. And there is none like him. Verse 8 says that neither does God give his praise to carved idols. When people worship false gods, That is unacceptable to God. It violates the very first and second and third commandments. He has been patient. He's been long-suffering with many who have worshipped false gods. But he does not give his praise to carved idols. He doesn't. In the final analysis, the carved idols will not have his praise. And you see, this is a beautiful aspect of the ministry of the servant, okay? One of the issues at hand, again, was that the worship of Yahweh was isolated to a small part of the world. You even had to go to the temple in Jerusalem in order to properly worship Yahweh. Everywhere else in the world, everywhere else in the world was full of the worship of other gods. And worse still, worse still, his own people also worshiped other gods. And that was unacceptable to God. So, the servant's ministry was to reverse that reality. It was to reverse that reality. To make it so that Israel and the rest of the world would no longer worship false gods, but worship him instead. Is that tracking with you? Okay, let me say that again. The servant's ministry was to reverse that reality to make it so that Israel and the rest of the world would no longer worship false gods, but worship him instead. But you say, but people all over the world are still worshiping false gods. Again, good point. That's true. But this is an ongoing ministry of the servant. When Christ was on earth, he established his kingdom. He lived the perfect life required of us. He paid the debt that we owed on the cross. And in so doing, he brought the believers of his time from darkness to light. And then he commissioned those believers to continue that ministry, sending them the Holy Spirit to help them and promising to be with them to the end of the age. Okay, And then through those believers, the servant continued his rescue ministry. And as more people have been saved, worship of the true God has continued to spread throughout the world. And the worship of false gods has continued to diminish. All of this is working toward an end when the servant will return to complete his mission. A new earth is going to be established. And on that new earth, there will be no more worship of false gods. There will only be worship of the true and living God. Why has he not done that yet? It's because he's still rescuing people out of darkness. He's still making them worshipers of Yahweh. He is increasing the population of that new earth. Question for you. Will you be in that number? If your trust is in Jesus Christ, then your answer can be a hearty yes. Praise God, I will be there. And if your answer is, I don't know, or no, friend, the servant calls out to you today to trust in him and be rescued. Believe him, and he will take you from that prison. He will take you from that darkness. Don't delay. In this way, of spreading the worship of Yahweh throughout the world, the servant would glorify God. And, and through us, he continues to do that. He continues to glorify God in spreading the worship of Yahweh all over the world. John Piper puts it this way, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When we make disciples of all nations, we are making worshipers of Yahweh. It is all a work of God. That's true. But he uses us to that end. And through us, the worship of false God, false gods decreases and the worship of the true and living God increases and God is glorified. The servant would glorify God. Finally, number 10, the servant was foretold. The servant was foretold. Look at verse 9. Behold, The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Remember from last week's passage that all of the false gods of the world were challenged and unable to foretell Cyrus. They couldn't do it. God, however, foretold Cyrus 150 years before he arrived. Remember that? And what God is saying here in verse 9 is, look, What I foretold before happened exactly as I said it would. And now I'm telling you new things. I'm telling you before they happen. And just as I made Cyrus happen, I will make my servant happen. To Israel, he is foretelling an even greater deliverance than the deliverance from Babylon, great as that deliverance was. God is using that incredible work with an incredible deliverer named Cyrus, to guarantee an even greater work and deliverer in his servant. His deliverance of them, which he foretold, was a guarantee of the Messiah. And 550 years later, he sent his servant, his own son, Jesus Christ. The servant was foretold. And not only was he foretold here, but he has been progressively foretold since the beginning Jesus is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3. He is the king of righteousness in Genesis 14. He is the seed of Abraham in Genesis 22. He is the only son who would be killed in Genesis 22. He is the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. He is the rock in the wilderness in Exodus 17. He is the bronze serpent of Numbers 21. He is the prophet of Moses, as in Deuteronomy 18, or like Moses. He is the son of David in Second Samuel 7. He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And that's just a little bit. There is so much more. The servant was foretold, and he has come. And now it has been foretold that he will come again. Do you believe? The servant was God's chosen one. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He would bring justice to the nations. He would be meek, mild, steadfast, and a covenant from the Almighty God. He would be our rescuer, and he would glorify God. And all of this has been foretold. I appeal to you again, place your faith in this servant foretold. And if you have already trusted him, keep trusting him. He's not only delivered you, but he delivers you still. Believe that. Help others to believe that. And remember, we are part of the ongoing work of the servant. Gathering up everlasting worshipers for Yahweh as we bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Praise God that he has sent his servant for us. Come to him. All who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for this servant. Thank you for sending him for sinners like us. We didn't deserve it in the slightest. It's all your majestic, sovereign grace. And we pray that we would respond both in gratitude and in our works that you work out in us, all by your mercy. Help us, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.